You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Welcome back to More to Be Said. This is our podcast where we take topics really deep and talk about them for a long time and try to just explore some different things that we think everybody needs to grow in in life. And today I have with me Chase Cotton. He is the community director at the Willow Center. And this is part two of our podcast on addiction. So Chase, thank you for being here with us today. Yeah, it's a pleasure and an honor. Thanks, Matt. Well, thank you. Thank you. So if you didn't get a chance to listen to our first interview, I highly recommend that maybe pause this, go back, listen to that because there'll be some things that come up here, I'm sure, that will refer back to something we've said already. So jumping in today, I referenced in the last podcast that uh, years ago, I had a mentor and he'd spent some time in SA and he just shared a number of pieces of wisdom with me. One of the things I thought was fascinating while we were talking was there was this season where he was mentoring me and he was going through an intense struggle. And the reason I know is I had texted and called him a few times and I wasn't hearing anything back. And he was really, really good. You know, he worked, he couldn't always get a hold of me at work, but he told me if I can't get to you right away, hang on. And I promise as soon as I'm free, I'll call you. And he did. And then one day we went days and I didn't hear anything. And then we went a week and I didn't hear anything. And I literally got anxious. Like, is he okay? Is he safe? Has he fallen off the wagon? What's happened? Well, what was happening was he was in his self in an intense battle. Now he'd been sober for decades at this point, decades, but he was fasting and praying intensely for the Lord to help him, give him the strength so that he did not return to his, uh, to his vice. And so I say that because I, it just dawned on me like, wow, here I am thinking this guy's been sober for decades. It's just not an issue for him anymore. But out of nowhere, it raised his ugly head. It was an intense issue for him. So I thought, let's start here today. What does it mean to be free from an addiction? The way I would define freedom is that it's the liberation of the whole person from dependence to substances, whether that a substance is chemical or otherwise. It's the liberation of the whole person from dependence to substances. And when I say the whole person, I'm referring to sort of like the eight dimensions of a person. There's this model in public health called the eight dimensions of wellness that we reference a lot in mental health and addiction treatment. Those dimensions include physical, intellectual, emotional, spiritual, social, environmental, vocational, and financial. Eight dimensions of wellness. And true freedom is liberation from whatever influence that substance or vice or what have you has on all eight of those dimensions. It's like if you think about an addiction to alcohol, for example, has dramatic effects on your body. It dampens your intellectual judgment abilities, makes you feel depressed. It has really terrible shame components to it, like we addressed in part one. The social stigma associated with high alcohol consumption or alcohol addiction, as well as the isolation that comes if you are causing trouble because of those symptoms you're experiencing. The environment gets worse and worse the more you neglect some of the environmental aspects, or the environment could be playing a role in why you're using in the first place. You might lose your job. You might experience repercussions at your job. And you're probably spending a ton of money on alcohol. It affects all eight dimensions of your personhood. And so freedom is liberation in all aspects of that substance having influence on your life. So in that regard, then the therapy, whatever therapy would mean, we should go there in a little bit here, but yeah. whatever therapy would mean, it would mean kind of unpacking each of those eight boxes, categories, where you want to call them individually and trying to create a path towards health and yes. freedom. 
Yep. And there's this concept called pathways to recovery that plays a major role in um, both the treatment side of addiction treatment, as well as sort of just the community side of addiction treatment. So there are multiple pathways to freedom or multiple pathways to recovery, because I think you can use freedom and recovery in, in interchangeably. There are the 12 step pathways, like we talked a lot about in the first part of this podcast, including AA, NA, SA, celebrate recovery, which is sort of like the faith-based version of that. Um, there's secularized versions like smart recovery, which share a lot of language with 12 steps, but actually only have things like um, like eight-step versions um, or just slightly modified models to use. Then there's also like the clinical side, the side that I sort of come from, which is different types of therapy and counseling, uh, relapse prevention planning, recovery management groups, building connections and recovery capital with other people who are in long-term recovery, as well as medication plays a role for a lot of people who have co-occurring mental health struggles as well. Okay. So what role would medication play? How would that be helpful? So there are sort of two different categories of medication. There's sort of the psychiatrics, which affects mood. And then there's what's called MAT, M-A-T, medication-assisted treatment, which is sort of a long-term detoxification process. So those who are addicted to opioids, for example, which include pain prescription pills, heroin, morphine, fentanyl, those are all opioids. There are a lot of medications under the MAT category, medication-assisted treatment, that can help you reduce levels of craving and detox off of those substances until you no longer even need those medications, right? Sometimes it takes three months, sometimes it takes about a year, but typically you wean off of those medications in conjunction with also going through some sort of clinical counseling or therapy. The psychiatrics are more mood altering. Like if you have a predisposition to a hyperabundance of the hormones responsible for feelings of anxiety or depression, sometimes balancing those hormones out with a properly prescribed medication taken according to that prescription can really, really help your baseline functioning as a human. Okay. Okay. That helps me get my head wrapped around it. How does a person discern whether or not medication is helpful or needed? Is that only under the oversight of an expert? Absolutely. You have to consult with both your primary care provider as well as whoever you're going to for therapy. Where do you start? You know, that's going to be a little different for each person. Some people are going to start because of the consequence of what's already happened, right? Especially in the addiction world. Um, maybe I'm starting because I've, I'm on probation now and I just got referred to treatment by my probation officer. Or maybe you have felt sad for two weeks or more and you find yourself crying but you can't find an identifiable reason. Mm. You're just like, what do I do? Right? Well, then you start by reaching out to a place like the Willow Center, or you can start with your primary care provider and they can recommend you to a place like the Willow Center to start that treatment process, whether it is therapeutic, medication, or both. So years ago, I think it was Sandra Bullock starred in a movie called 28 Days. Yeah. I think that's correct. Great movie. Right? It really was a good movie, but it kind of was like, hey, it takes 28 days to break a habit, right? Mm -hmm. Is that true? No. <laughs> That is verifiably <laughs> false, especially when it comes to some of these, uh, you know, like addictive passageways in the brain, both yeah. chemical and, and neuroelectrical that we talked about in part one. Like those things are hardwired into your brain. Like they're not going away ever, right? So addiction is not something you cure. It is something you manage. Now we can talk about neuroplasticity in a moment, which is a fun sciencey thing, but 28 days is not what it takes to break a habit. 28 days is the limit that insurance companies put on inpatient stays for inpatient rehabilitation treatment. They just won't pay for more than 28 days. So what should a person expect if they're going, I need help? Is this the rest of my life? Is this a couple hours? Where's the gap? Where's the, like that time frame? Yeah. So with respect to each individual person's story, what they're dealing with, whether it's trauma-based, whether it's stress-based, whether it's an addiction or mental health, what you can expect, especially the similarities across all different levels of care, is you can expect 
starting more intensive and stepping down to less intensive. Okay. So starting more intensive, let's take alcohol addiction. The example we were using in part one of the podcast, if you are severely addicted to alcohol, you are drinking every day, you've become totally dependent upon it. And your brain believes you need alcohol to survive, right? It's not even about getting drunk. It's, it's to survive. Okay. You're likely going to start with an intensive inpatient treatment, meaning you're going to live somewhere for likely 28 days, depending on your insurance plan. Okay, A step down from that would be residential treatment, which can be a little bit longer depending on the residential program. Again, that's living someplace. A step down from that would be what's called IOP, intensive outpatient, or PHP, partial hospitalization, where you go in a few days a week for a few hours at a time to participate in therapeutic practices, counseling, um, skills-based education, things like that. One step below that is just typical out patient counseling, which is what the Willow Center is. That would be maybe a couple times a week, once a week, every other week, kind of dependent upon your level of need. And then a step below that would be sort of just the as needed counseling. So when things get bad again, I am going into my counselor again to reinvigorate some of those resources I had before to remind myself of the strategies I've used that have worked. But the one constant through all of it is connection. Right. So the one thing you want to keep in mind if you are experiencing, whether it's a mental health or addiction struggle, is you can't do it alone. You can't do it alone. The disease of addiction is going to try to make you believe that you are alone and that there's no hope for you and there's nobody else like you and nobody's going to understand. But if you can get past and outside of that isolation piece, right, that connection will be constant in all levels of care. You're going to meet other people from day one of your inpatient stay. You're going to stay connected to people all the way to day 501 when you are in long-term recovery or in long-term, I guess, management of a mental health struggle and you're in the maintenance stage, right? Like there will be connective relationships that are going to be your lifeline. And that's so important. Counseling in general, psychology in general, uh, is one of those things I find extremely fascinating. So I've done a lot of study, a lot of reading, yeah. and that kind of thing. So I understand like when a child is young, they do not have the verbal skills or really the brain development skills to, to do much what's called talk therapy. Right. So a lot of counseling with children, especially the younger they are, involves play. Mm-hmm. And playfulness fosters vulnerability, which creates the place where they could share, talk openly, that kind of thing. But as you get older, the theory goes that you can enter into what's what we call talk therapy. It's what we're calling psychology or counseling. What exactly is talk therapy? What is happening in that room for the person out there who's terrified of it or doesn't understand it? It doesn't make sense to them. They have in their mind the stigmatization about uh, needing a head shrink or whatever it is, right? Like somebody help me get my head on straight. I don't need that. I'm, you know, I'm fine, whatever. So what happens in the room that might help people feel safe? Yeah. I want to start by just addressing that fear and saying it's totally normal to be nervous. Okay. There's not a single person who reaches out for help who doesn't feel a little bit of anxiety about that. It takes a lot of courage and bravery to take that step. So know that you're not alone in that feeling, uh, dear listener. But talk therapy is a safe, non-judgmental space and relationship in which a person can process their emotions, process their behaviors, process their story, especially if trauma is part of that story, and subsequently process the symptoms that they're experiencing of whatever those things might have triggered, whether it's mental health or addiction. The, the key components of talk therapy is connection. Again, I know I sound like a broken record, but whether you're in individual counseling or group counseling with other people or family counseling, like some of the members of your family, both biological or chosen are with you in that counseling session, like those connections are what therapy is about and building this sort of clinical connection with your therapist who helps you dig deep into what's causing 
these problems and find ways to manage the symptoms of those problems and correct the symptoms of the problems and live your life in a way that is full of hope and dignity and respect and productivity, etc. Okay, so let me be the voice of the, the cynic for yeah. a second. Literally try to put myself in their head and be like, I don't need that. There's nothing wrong with what's in my head. I mean, what am I supposed to do? How's it going to help? I'm going to come in and just tell you my story and walk out, pay you a hundred bucks. I feel better about myself. How's that supposed to work? Yeah. So there's no such thing as free treatment. Okay. So that's, you know, the cynic who I can definitely identify with is not wrong and that it might cost you a hundred dollars, especially depending on your insurance. I just made plan. up a number. I have no <laughs> idea. <laughs> You're in the ballpark. <laughs> Thank but, you. Um, there's no such thing as free treatment, but for the cynic, all I can offer you is my own story as someone who has benefited from counseling and therapy in my own life based on depression and anxiety, and the story of others like me who have experienced great hope, great rejuvenation, great healing inside the therapy room. It is also evidence-based. I mean, if you are a true cynic, cynics like to learn. Cynics like to be educated so that they can make an educated decision about what they're going to do for themselves or others. So go look at the research. The research for decades and decades and decades overwhelmingly supports positive outcomes based on talk therapy. And the neat thing about talk therapy is that it's going to be a little bit different flavor based on what counselor you have. So if you don't feel like maybe a past experience was bad, maybe you just need a different counselor that you connect a little better with. And there are dozens of counselors out there that might be the right one for you that you can connect with and start doing some of the psychoeducation, some of the goal setting, some of the processing of what you've been through and what you want to end in your life and what you want to start in your life, that sort of thing. I often encourage our church when they're thinking through getting counseling or not getting counseling, I often say, look, counselors are like friends. In fact, one of the words to describe God in the Bible is counselor. The Mm -hmm. Holy Spirit is described as a counselor. And you ever notice that there are certain people in life you enjoy hanging out with and there are certain people you don't. And it's not that they aren't good people. People are nice people or, you know, they're, they're fine for other people to be friends with, but you don't find pleasure in hanging out with them. Counselors are the same. And there's no shame if you meet with somebody. I always say you got to give somebody two to four, two to four sessions. Yes. Because you're going to go in for two to four sessions. You're going to start telling your story. You're going to get to the end of the first hour and be like, okay, well, let's go ahead and meet again next week. Like, wait, wait, that's it? Like, yeah, because I don't know your story yet. If I start applying things before I understand things, it's going to take time. So two to four sessions and after four, maybe five sessions, if you aren't clicking, it's okay to just say, I need to find somebody else. This isn't, this isn't Absolutely. working. It's not you. It's me. Right. <laughs> yeah. Breaking up with your counselor is not easy or fun, but uh, you're absolutely right, Matt. Yeah. Give it a few yeah. sessions. In particular, when it comes to addiction, one of the major symptoms of addiction is defense. Mm. Right? You're gonna make me talk about what? Absolutely not. Like you're going to tell me what I've done wrong. Absolutely not. But addiction counselors, part of their practice and part of their training is to be firm and hold you accountable, yeah. which doesn't always feel friendly. Yeah. Sometimes it's going to make you really mad. So give it a few sessions. Allow your brain to start getting some new pathways built to understand your emotions and your relationships and your disease and whatnot. You might surprise yourself. Let's talk about that for a minute. It wasn't in our planned questions, but you say part of our, our job as a counselor is to hold you accountable. Yeah. The phrase accountable is such a, a scary phrase because we're all afraid of punishment. What does accountability look like? I mean, you don't have any strings to pull, right? I mean, you're not holding a literal gun to anybody's head. Right. So then how do you hold somebody accountable? Therapeutically, that's going to look a little bit different based on whatever someone's coming in with for counseling. But typically what accountability looks like, especially in the recovery community, is having someone you answer to. So that could be a sponsor, okay, especially if you're part of the 12-step programs. Someone who is checking in on you regularly and saying, how are you doing? Are you practicing your recovery management steps and tools and techniques? Are you doing what you needed to do to avoid triggers and prevent recurrences or relapses? It also looks like very basic kind of elementary principles like like drug screens. Mm. 
You might feel ridiculous having to pee in a cup, but frankly, that tells us a lot more than sometimes you're willing to tell us because some, some of the symptoms of addiction, again, affect that prefrontal cortex, that judgment, that, that piece of, you know, discernment. And like you said, that, you know, we, we try to hide a lot of the times from the pain we're experiencing or causing others. So a UDS, as we call it for short, can tell us a lot and can help a counselor or a treatment center hold you accountable to the standards that you're trying to learn, to the, the improvements that you're trying to make for yourself and for others. So that's, that's sort of one piece of accountability. The other piece, I think, is an internal commitment to recovery lifestyle, mm. right? Because recovery and sobriety are not the same thing, right? Sometimes sobriety is even just sort of a fad, like oh, no drink November. Recovery is a whole... I've heard of no shave November. <laughs> I don't think I've heard of no drink November. It exists, All right. All right. It exists. Yeah. Okay. Or, you know, let's bring it to the faith community. A lot of us give up drinking for Lent. Mm. Right? Or we give up eating sugar for Lent because sugar is an addictive substance. I decided to give up Lent for Lent. <laughs> Touche. Touche. Yeah, you, yeah, you get what I mean, though. It's right. sort of the, the fattiness of, of sobriety sometimes. Recovery is whole life change. You have to change people, change things, change places. All of it has to change in your life. And there has to be an internal commitment. Right? If you're not ready for that internal commitment, you're not ready for recovery. Yeah. There has to be an internal commitment. You have to hold yourself accountable to doing the next right thing. You know, we see this all the time in the sports world where somebody enters, say, the NFL, and uh, they've got some connections they've made in their past that aren't good or healthy. Sure. And it leads them down a dark road, but now they have lack of accountability and a boat ton of money, mm. right? And it's like, oh, wow. And so they get into trouble. And again, the shame stigma, people start throwing, you know, casting stones and, right. and judging, how, you know, you have no idea how blessed you are and lucky you are. And like, you, gosh, do you realize the burden of carrying, you know, being 22 years old with millions of dollars in the bank and, and, and not knowing how to create a new set of friends and networks and blah, 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 blah. And it's right. hard. It's hard to look at people in your past who aren't healthy and say, I can't stay here anymore right. and set that boundary in place. So part of what talk therapy does is helps you identify those boundaries and, and set, set them. them. Boundaries are huge. You're absolutely right. So do you spend a lot of your time actually helping people figure out how, what do I say to this person? How do I cut this person off or set this boundary in place, put distance between me and them or heal what I've done or whatever it might be? That plays a major role, um, you know, both in, in the 12-step process as well as in clinical treatment. Boundaries are super, super important, right? Because many of us who are our allies of the recovery community or in recovery ourselves have relationships built around use, right? Whether they're codependent relationships or whether that's just how we had fun, quote unquote fun, right? Those relationships only had one input and that input was substance use. So there has to be boundaries set with some of those people in your life in order to make progress. So that's one of the, one of the earliest things that happens in your recovery process to help keep you healthy. You use the phrase codependent and uh, we've talked about that periodically at other podcasts here we've done, but what is, what do you define codependency as? What does that look like? Codependency is finding your worth in another individual. And that can, you know, rear its ugly head in a variety of ways, especially if your codependent relationship is based around substance use, right? I am only able to survive if this person is in my life. That's one of the most unhealthiest lies you can believe about yourself in a codependent relationship is, well, this person who I use with, or this person who deals to me, or this person who understands what it's like to also be addicted to the substance with me is the key to my survival, the key to my worth, right? There's some really dark things that happen in that place. Let me build on that for a second then. How do you, as a counselor, prevent yourself from becoming the next person they're codependent on? So I just, you know, I transfer, right? Transference is talked a lot about in ministry cycles and circles, and I'm guessing also in counseling circles. How do I keep them from just saying, okay, I'm, I'm codependent on my spouse, my friend, my mom, whatever it is, my child, and now I'm just transferring that to you? Because I've literally talked to people and it's like, you know, I was meeting with this counselor for three years and then they just up and moved. Can you believe that they moved? Right. Like, wait, now wait a minute, right? Like, so how do 
do you prevent that? That's a great question. And to be clear, I'm not personally a counselor, but what my colleagues at the Willow Center have mentioned in the past is that this also has to do with boundary setting. But now it's like a clinical professional boundary, not necessarily just an interpersonal one. Because most of us who have been through counseling do want to befriend our counselors. They're doing what a good friend would do. They're listening well. They're attentive to our needs. They're providing us resources or strategies. But the best counselors help you find your solution okay. yourself, right? Like okay. they're not necessarily saying this is what you need to do, right? This is what's next. Do this step, do this step, do that step, All right? They are helping you find those solutions on your own terms at your own pace yeah. and giving you the accountability and the structure and maybe the tools to get to that place on your own. You know, we really resist the urge at every turn to try to make these podcasts about Kingsway because we definitely don't have all the answers and we don't have all the ministries. There are many other opportunities in the, in the communities, especially here on the West side. There's so many great opportunities, but I would say that is one of the things we try to focus focus on here is we try to put a lot of emphasis into helping people become healthy and whole yeah. in every aspect of their life. And so that's why we offer different ministries, depending on where people are coming from, which brings up a, a, a good question here. So let's say that I come from a family with addiction. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that I could do to make sure, because now I've learned a pattern, whether I know it or not, those patterns have been ingrained in me. How do I prevent myself from going down that path? My mom was codependent, you know, on her boyfriends, or I'm just making this up. That's sure. not my mom for those listening, but <laughs> that might be my story, right? Or my dad abused alcohol. And even though I hate it, I found myself using it to cope. And how do I, what pattern, how do I break the cycle? The first step is awareness. Yeah. Be aware of what your story is and what your family history is. Because even medically, there are genetic predispositions that are hardwired into your brain and body based on especially parents, substance use, or mental illness, right? So understand your history and your family story and how that could potentially have effects on you. Step two, again, here comes that broken record. We're skipping back. Connection. Have connections in your life that you can rely upon to one, love you for you, right? But two, give you the support you need when things get hard because things are going to get hard, right? <laughs> like Things are going to get difficult to deal with. And as long as you have those supportive connections, especially, you know, in the recovery community for those who might have experienced addiction, they will be your lifeline to make it through those hardships, regardless of your family history, right? The other piece we already sort of touched on is is you might have to have some boundaries, especially if those people in your family or in your friend group are still a part of your life in some way. You might have to put some loving distance, some compassionate but firm boundaries where this person doesn't speak into your life anymore because what they speak is, is not true. Or this person no longer spends more than an hour or two with you because they start leading you down a dark place or they're always going to invite you for a drink or whatever. Those boundaries are going to be really, really key if you come from a family that has those patterns of addiction or mental illness. We keep using the word boundaries. And if you haven't checked it out, uh, Dr. Henry Cloud or Dr. John Townsend actually wrote a book called Boundaries. It's a fantastic little book. My favorite book, though, was their second book. They followed up that one with called Boundaries Face to Face. And it was kind of like how to have a boundaries conversation. And so mm-hmm. like, what does it look like when I'm actually trying to set a boundary? Because the, the goal is not become passive aggressive, right? You just right. Start, you start ghosting people and, yeah, you're not, and not texting back. Not go, it doesn't help. They don't go away. So it's like, how do I have it? And if you are a person who struggles with boundaries, then you probably by nature struggle with setting boundaries. And how do I even talk about it? So I don't know if you have any other resource you recommend on that, that it could be helpful for people. Those are great books. I mean, there are, there are dozens and dozens of books on boundaries. I would just encourage you to start somewhere. <laughs> Grab one. <laughs> yeah. Like, cause sometimes just getting started and, you know, sort of like what we're talking about in the first podcast, admitting that you need help with something can be a huge struggle. So if you need help with boundaries, start by reading something. Yeah. Okay. So is it true 
that once you're an addict, you're always an addict? Yes and no. I want to start by just addressing the word addict. I kind of mentioned this in part one, but there are these these terms, these phrases that we use that are, are really isolating and shaming to people. So the, the term that we refer to as those who are struggling with addiction is a person in long-term recovery or a person in active addiction, right? It's person first language is sort of like the, the treatment industry standard. So if you've experienced addiction, is it true that you will always experience addiction? Absolutely not, right? If you've experienced addiction, is it true that your brain will always be predisposed for becoming addicted to things? Yeah, yeah. Those brain pathways are hardwired, but there's this thing called neuroplasticity in our brain. I was just about to go there. All right, so talk to us <laughs> yeah. about it. You mentioned earlier. I mentioned it. Let's yep. talk about it. So neuroplasticity gives me so much hope. It is a biological gift built into human beings and our brains where your brain gives you multiple opportunities to build new pathways, okay? So just like you built addictive pathways through substance use and that addiction cycle like we referred to in part one of the podcast, you can build new pathways that go around those addictive ones. And you can practice those pathways. You can practice those new healthy coping skills. You can practice those new interpersonal skills and connections and support that you've built up to manage the addiction that you feel. And then those pathways will be stronger than the addictive ones, right? That neuroplasticity is is amazing, especially for survivors of any kind of trauma, right? Those who've experienced a deep trauma in their life, whether it's assault or abuse or, or discrimination or racism, like those traumas really affect your brain dramatically and change the pathways in your brain and the way you react to potential danger or potential stress, but neuroplasticity is your brain giving you another chance to still have hope, to be able to manage your reactions to things, to be able to find new ways of doing life that are healthy and whole. Every time I hear this phrase, neuroplasticity, I've done some reading on it. The phrase confuses me. I get hung up on the words. Neural just means brain, like brain pathways, electrons mm-hmm. or whatever, like f- firing through your brain. Right. Plasticity, help people with this. I could do it, but I think you probably could do it better than me. So Sure. And I'm no brain scientist. Right. I'm in public I relations. It. I get but, it. Right. Uh, yeah. Plasticity describes sort of like, it's almost like the stretchiness or contraction of a muscle. Okay. So when you are addicted to a substance, you are stretching and contracting the pathways responsible for addiction. Consider it like a river. I think I might have mentioned this metaphor in part one. The river is running this course and getting deeper and deeper ingrained in that pathway that the river runs in. But if I want to change the direction of that river, I'm going to need a new canal. I'm going to need builders for that canal. I'm going to need supporters to raise money to build that canal. And then I'm going to have to route the water through that canal intentionally. And that canal will get stronger and stronger. The better it's used, the more support it has, etc. Right. So your canal builders are your therapists, you know, your your fundraisers are your, your supportive community or your, your small group or whatever. Right. And then the intention is sort of that desire for recovery life. Right. That will help you practice the neuroplasticity in your brain to exercise new muscles in that new river canal, if you will. The analogy I heard years ago, I was reading a book and it was talking about uh, neuroplasticity is like going on on a walk, say at the park. There's this park. We live over here in Avon, Indiana. If you live in this community, you may know the Washington Township Park is just up the road from here. Mm-hmm. And they've got this stream and my boys and I would love to go down to the stream, but in order to get there, you got to really go through the woods. Right. Well, there's two ways to go through the woods. There's one path that is extremely well-worn and it's certain parts of the year, especially in the spring before anybody's really traveled it well everything is growing over the path Mm -hmm. but it's a lot like that you could tell that path is well worn many bikes many feet have gone over that path and you can it's easy to go over that path again right and so addiction is like that path that path is well worn in your brain every time you drove home and you passed that one bar and you're feeling the weight and the stress of work you pulled over and so now there's a pathway and it's easy if you want to not go maybe drink on your way home i know one gentleman this was a story he actually had to start going a different way 
way home. And it took yeah. him another 20 minutes. He had to literally create a new path. But that's kind of the analogy of you have to wear a new path. Right. And the first time you go through a new path, it's very grown over. There's nothing there. You're cutting the path for the first time. Yeah. And so you got the vines and the pricklies. It's going to hurt. It's going to cut you. It's going to scratch it's you uncomfortable. Up. But you have to go down that path. And then you have to go back down that path the next time. Over and, and over and right. over and over. Again. And over time, the other path will become overgrown again. And the other path will be open again. But yeah. you have to keep choosing that other path. Right. I like your path better because it's got this journey and other people walking down the path with me. But that analogy, right? You're it's cutting a, a new path. Okay, so I think we're almost done, but I got a couple more questions. So you've mentioned triggers two or three times now. Yeah. What is a trigger? Great question. So a trigger is anything that reminds your brain of pain you've either experienced in the past or the pain that you might experience in the future, okay? So a trigger could be the scent of someone's perfume or cologne. A trigger could be related to whatever pain you experienced. A trigger could be a location. So like, for example, my wife struggles with anxiety from time to time. And early on in her career, that anxiety was almost entirely triggered by the workplace that she was in at that time. And to this day, when we drive past that exit on 65 South, I can still see the fight, flight, or the flight, fight, or freeze response mm. happening in her body. She gets tense. Her heart rate goes up. She gets a little cold and clammy and sweaty driving past that exit because her brain is triggering her to avoid that negative experience. So triggers are actually our brain performing self-protection. And I think a way that we can really practice compassion for each other is being a little more open with what we feel triggered by just in communication, as well as being more protective of each other's triggers once they've been communicated. This is something that is pr- well practiced in the recovery community, right? Like we're never going to have a recovery meeting at a bar because bars are a trigger, right? I know that's a funny example, but it's just true. Yeah, they can't hear me laughing over here. I'm like, yeah, it just seems obvious, but I'm sure it's not, right? right. It's obvious to one person may not be to another. Right, sure. Right. If you're in serious enough, it's okay to do this with a counselor. Yes. <laughs> to get help and let somebody else, you don't have to solve this problem on your own. Honestly, if, if folks listening don't hear anything else that Matt and I have said, <laughs> just hear this, there's no shame in asking for help. None. There's no shame in asking for help. And I think sort of to bring the conversation full circle from part one, I think that shame piece is one of the hardest things for us to get over, especially from a faith context, right? How many times, even just in my own story, I was told to pray more because I felt sad for no reason. Mm. And don't get me wrong, prayer is an incredible meditative tool that connects me with the divine. And it's important to me personally. And it's, it's actually scientifically proven to help your feelings and your mental health. But that is not a solution. That is a stigma. That is a societal shame that even in faith communities we experience. But something that I think is really beautiful is that these tools that we've been talking about over the past two podcast sessions are available to us and are, in my language, God approved, right? So to, to quote scripture, yeah. um, and this is just to be clear, this is Chase Cotton quoting scripture, yeah. not the Willow Center necessarily because I'm not a faith-based practice. In James chapter one, verse 17, he says, every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Therapy, medication, professional services, connections in recovery and 12-step groups and small groups, these are all good and perfect gifts from above. And we should never, ever, ever, ever shroud them with stigma or shame. These are things that are available to us freely and openly, and we all deserve the chance to participate in those things, to live a healthier, better life. Yeah. 
And if I can affirm for anybody out there struggling, what Chase has just said, there's a point in the scriptures where uh, one of Paul's protégés apparently is is feeling sick to his stomach. And Paul tells him, I think it's Timothy, not Titus, I could be wrong. And he says, hey, have a little red wine with what you're doing. And part of what's going on there in context is there's a lot of bacteria in the water. Mm -hmm. And so they would use alcohol to kill the bacteria. And he's saying, like, drink a little red wine, it'll help with your upset stomach. Well, he didn't tell him, hey, Timothy, just pray about it. Right. It'll all go away. He's acknowledging the fact that we we are physical human beings. We have physical issues and there's nothing wrong or, or sinful about it, excepting the fact that we live in a sinful world where things hurt sometimes. There's also that same Paul, and I think it's in the book of Philippians. I'm terrible sometimes at remembering where we I read things, but Paul is, is frustrated himself. He's like, man, I've been in prison and nobody visited me. You didn't send anybody to come and comfort me. And then his next verse is, it's okay, God met me. God took care of it. But there's this moment where it's like, you know, he, he's frustrated. He's like, man, I'm alone and yeah. I don't want to be alone. And he's calling out the church saying, help me, love me, care for me like I have for you. Right. So there's nothing wrong with feeling alone and needing somebody else. And I would always encourage you, don't give up on God. God will meet that need. Sometimes we just have to hang on a little longer, Definitely. cry out for help. So much more could be said, Chase. I just want to say thank you for your time today. Thank you for all of our listeners. I hope this this podcast and the series has been a blessing to you. If you want to learn more about Kingsway, go to kingswaychurch.org and we will see you next time.